your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Good afternoon, and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Wellness Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Wellness Community, a new internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community, an international nonprofit organization dedicated to providing support, education, and hope to people with cancer and their loved ones at over 100 locations worldwide and online at www.thewellnesscommunity.org. And I'm happy to say that today is our very first episode of Frankly Speaking About Cancer. But before we jump into today's topic, let's move to a segment we call Cancer in the News, which highlights the latest cancer headlines. I'm Bill Schaefer, and this is today's Cancer in the News. U.S. researchers recently revealed that a new technique called molecular breast imaging, or MBI, works three times better than mammography at finding tumors in women who have dense breast tissue. The technique involves a radioactive tracer that illuminates cancer hiding inside dense breasts, revealing tumors which otherwise may have gone undetected. As advances in technology continue, researchers are moving further away from a one-size-fits-all method of screening and instead are beginning to think about screening procedures that are geared more toward an individual woman's risk. Clear benefits of moving in this direction would be more accurate cancer assessments and fewer false alarms. Mammography, which is an x-ray of the breast, is currently the most commonly used screening tool for breast cancer. But for women with dense breast tissue, which constitutes about a quarter of women getting screened, mammograms may not be able to detect small tumors. While MBI uses radiation similar to mammograms, it differs in that the women are given an intravenous dose of a short-acting tracer that is more readily absorbed by abnormal cells than by healthy ones. Highly advanced cameras then capture the glow these abnormal cells emit, which provides doctors with more accuracy in spotting tumors. Although the study, which involved 940 women, is the largest to date to compare MBI to mammography, it's important to note that molecular breast imaging is still experimental and is not yet commonly available to women. While the study has yielded exciting results, researchers stress that they are not looking to have molecular breast imaging replace mammography in any way. Instead, they envision MBI as a supplemental test for those women who may not receive an accurate assessment from mammograms. A current screening tool for women with dense breasts or with a high risk of breast cancer has been magnetic resonance imaging, or MRI exams. While the use of these exams in breast cancer screening has increased, so has the cost. 
Researchers of the MBI study say that molecular breast imaging may become a lower-cost alternative and estimate it would cost about $500 to perform versus $1,000 to $2,000 for an MRI. Molecular breast imaging, as currently used, presents a very low risk of radiation if a woman has this particular screening method performed only a few times in a lifetime. But researchers must lower radiation amounts if the technology begins to be used as a screening test every year or two. I'm Bill Schaefer, and that's today's Cancer in the News. Today's episode is focusing on the empowered cancer patient. Today, we'll offer helpful tips from the Total Cancer Wellness Guide, which is a book that the wellness community wrote in 2007 that empowers people with cancer and their loved ones to navigate their way through a cancer diagnosis and make the best possible patient-active decisions. We have a great panel with us today. Our guests uh, have a wide range of personal and professional experience in cancer. First, we have Dr. Lydia Shapira. Uh, Lydia is a medical oncologist at the Gillette Center for Breast Oncology at Massachusetts General Hospital and an assistant professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. Welcome, Lydia. Thank you, Kim. We also have with us Matt Lascalzo. Matthew is the head of the Sherry and Les Biller Patient and Family Resource Center at the City of Hope Medical Center in California. Thanks so much for joining us from the West Coast, Matt. Hello, Kim. It's great to be here. And last but certainly not least, we're joined by Douglas Wilkie, Jr. Doug is a non-Hodgkin's lymphoma survivor and a participant at the wellness community in Arizona. Uh, Doug was featured in our book, The Total Cancer Wellness Guide. Thanks for being with us, Doug. Hi, Kim. I'm very happy to be here. So I'm thrilled that uh, we're all on the phone together today to talk about the empowered cancer patient. We know that there will be 1.4 million new cases of cancer diagnosed in the United States this year alone, more than 12 million cancer survivors in the U.S. Lydia, let's jump right in. Those words, you have cancer, maybe some of the scariest words in the English language. Let, let's start at the beginning. What is the first thing a patient should do when they get the news that they have cancer? I think the first thing is really to take the time to absorb the news, to turn the gaze inward, perhaps deal with some of the emotions that the person is feeling, instead of trying to rush to make an action plan first, just to take a moment to create the space to understand and absorb the news, then perhaps to share it with somebody, somebody who is close, so that there is an ally. And then only after that, after dealing with the emotions and having somebody on board to help uh, move forward, perhaps to find some compassion also directed inward, and then to start thinking about what to do, how to gather information and perhaps build a response to this news so that the person can get the best possible care and have the best possible outcome. So, the, so really we're talking about first you've really got to center yourself. Right. You've got, to, you've got to cope with this news a little bit before you can start to move into action. I think if you rush into action, you might just make some mistakes. And, you know, when you are overwhelmed with emotion, it's very hard to think clearly. So taking a little time may be very important in the long haul. So, Matt, uh, as uh, a social worker by background and now obviously running a program where you're serving so many cancer patients, I'm sure you're seeing this all the time. Patients walk in just diagnosed with cancer. Tell, tell, give us some thoughts on that, Matt. You've just been diagnosed with cancer. Maybe they, they get to you um, at, uh, at City of Hope. What advice do you give them on those first steps? 
Well, I think it's to build on the foundation that that actually Lydia just really laid down, and that is the first thing to do is to get yourself centered by accepting how hard it is. It's really hard to cope with a life-threatening illness, although most people will do very well and will probably be uh, cured. Uh, but the first thing to do is to just recognize that there's nothing that you need to do immediately. You should take a step back, get the facts, get your family organized, get your friends around you and circle the wagons. But most of all, choose and find a doctor, a physician, who is really consistent with how you can benefit from the care that they are offering, the, making sure that your communication styles line up and making sure that you feel confident in this person who is going to guide you through your medical treatment. Doug, let me go to you for a moment. You've been through this, obviously, this experience personally. Walk, walk us back to that moment, Doug. Tell us a little bit about when you were diagnosed with cancer, what that was like for you, and, and you know, what your instincts were really at that time. Well, it was, you know, of course it was devastating and, and overwhelming, you know, the moment that it happened. But in a strange way, it was kind of a relief to also have an official diagnosis. Um, it wasn't as if we didn't know something was wrong. You know, mm-hmm. I had had problems, and then we had done a stomach biopsy, and so um, we were waiting for those results. So I kind of, you know, we knew what was what were the, the possible things, and, you know, that had really set me, you know, set my nerves, you know, on edge. But so the moment that it came, it was a little overwhelming, but um, it was good to have that diagnosis, and I was... You know, it's given. I saw the doctor at uh, about noon, and given my the state where that I was in, we uh, yeah, physically the doctor wanted to admit me right away. I think I think they wanted to take action immediately, and so they admitted me that day. And uh, we discussed going into chemo uh, chemotherapy intervention immediately. Uh, so I had you know really no time to process. It was such a like lightning speed that. I think I, you know, looking back, I probably went into shock, but um, I was able, once that we got through that first day, to center myself and begin to, to figure out, okay, where are we going to go next? And, you know, I was, most people, I would say, that I've encountered do have some time to make that decision, but I was kind of glad that the doctor made one right away to, to start an intervention, but it, we went ahead and discussed then what, what we were going to do. Did you have family around you, Doug, friends around you as this was happening? Yeah, my parents were with me the moment that it happened, and I was quite comforted in a very strange way to go directly into the hospital. I just felt so overwhelmed. It was like, you know, just letting someone else kind of take care of me. But, um, but yeah, we, and then we started immediately to discuss, you know, what does this all mean and, uh, and begin that, that really important dialogue with the doctor. Lydia, we're going to go to a break in just a minute, but um, is it, so what I'm hearing is that maybe that experience that Doug had was not the, the, the typical experience being taken into the hospital right away, uh, that, that usually there's a little bit more time to kind of process things, think about things. Is that, is that right? So it depends on the illness. Mm-hmm. When you are diagnosed with a potentially catastrophic illness like acute leukemia or some forms of lymphoma, there really is no time. Mm-hmm. So that is a scenario which is very real for us. For most patients diagnosed with cancer, though, there is time, probably several weeks 
to uh, put together a plan, choose the right treatment team, and then commit to treatment. Mm-hmm. And, and, and Matt, are you, you're, you're finding the same. It's, it, it really depends on the diagnosis, whether the patient has some time or whether we need to really get them in to get some care immediately. Yes, it does, but the only thing that changes is the timeline. These people all need to sort of circle the wagons, get the information, find a good doctor, and or get a second, and then plan to get a second opinion, of course. So the timeline is uh, pushed up, but it's the basic steps that everyone has to go through. And if somebody, somebody's brought in, let's say, Matt, at City of Hope right away, we want to get them in right away for care, are you, are, the, are you providing support services there at the bedside and helping patients with some of these coping strategies? Well, as you know, Kim, we are one of the few centers in the world where we do do screening. So every new patient who comes in does get screened. So we ask them 41 of the most common questions, uh, focusing on specific problems that other cancer patients have. So they will be educated on day one to have a common language. So through our screening, we ask every new patient. Excellent, excellent. So we're talking today uh, about the empowered cancer patient. We're talking about how you, uh, as a patient, can get educated, can get empowered. We're talking about how you, as a cancer patient, can get connected with other people who are going through the same thing that you are going to. We have a great panel of guests today. We have Dr. Lydia Shapira from Massachusetts General Hospital. We have Matt Lascalzo uh, at the City of Hope Medical Center out in California. We have Doug Wilkie, a non-Hodgkin's lymphoma survivor. Uh, Doug is a participant at the wellness community uh, in Phoenix, Arizona, one of our 26 wellness communities across the country. And we will be back in just a minute to talk more about the empowered cancer patient. Your life, your health, your network. Voice America Health and Wellness. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle coworkers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. For more than 25 years, the wellness community has been the nation's leader in providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at one of our 26 centers in the U.S. and abroad, the wellness community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-WELL or visit us online at www.thewellnesscommunity.org. That's thewellnesscommunity.org. The Wellness Community, celebrating over 25 years of cancer support, education, and hope. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Wellness Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community. Welcome. 
Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm Kim Tebow, they're your host. We're talking today about what you and your loved ones can do to be empowered in the face of a cancer diagnosis. Matt, I want to pick back up on what we were talking about before we went to the break. You talked a little bit about how they're at City of Hope. When a patient comes through the door there, you're doing a screening to find out what some of their emotional issues are, what some of their social issues are, so that you can figure out how to give them the best help, the best care uh, that, that they can get at City of Hope. Tell us a little bit more about that screening and really how that works when patients come there. Well, yes. Thank you, Kim. So screening is a rapid uh, uh, process that we use here. We use a touchscreen computer so a patient and family member can quickly learn about some of the common problems are the physical, psychological, social, spiritual, uh, so, so many practical problems that most other cancer patients have so they could benefit from what we have learned and from what other cancer patients and their families have taught us. So we use screening not only to teach uh, cancer patients and their families what are some of the concerns that they should be looking for, but also to give them a common language with their physicians and with their nurses and their, and their social workers and with their rehabilitation folks. So we create the team sense from day one, teaching a common, natural, common language as well as, Kim, asking them about what some of their specific concerns are. Because we know based on the illness, based on your age, based on uh, your educational level, your needs are going to be profoundly different. So what screening does, it specifically tailors uh, an intervention that asks people about their concerns and then in real time triages them to the appropriate person. So Matt, let's go to this for a minute, common language. Give me an example of that. Are we talking about pain? Are we talking about, hey, you know what, I've just been diagnosed with cancer. I'm freaked out. <laughs> how do I deal with this? Are we talking about how am I going to tell my kids about this? What does that mean when you say a common language? Well, of course, Kim, it is all of those things. When you, no one has taken a course on how to be a cancer patient or a <laughs> caregiver of a cancer patient. So we've got to teach folks uh, based on the wisdom of other cancer patients, so we call wounded warriors, that they are healing heroes who are there to help them, and we are a team. And by the very fact that we alert cancer patients and their families that these are common problems, talking to your children about cancer, fatigue, pain, anxiety, even thoughts about dying, there's nothing that we're not willing to talk with our patients and families about because we know that the worst thing you can do is to leave someone without a voice. And the screening gives people a common language as well as an opportunity because not only do they tell us about these concerns, but at the same time they're able to let us know if they want to speak with a person on that day about these problems. Mm. Okay, fantastic. So you're really putting a system in place there for, for dealing with patients at every, every point of what they're doing, you know, coping with the, with the disease. And hopefully the system that you're working on there, Matt, at City of Hope can be, you know, replicated in other places um, around the country. Lydia, I want to go back to this idea. You, okay, you've just been diagnosed with cancer. I want to go back to the second opinion um, idea. You know, we have 26 wellness communities. We talk to patients all the time. We hear them say, I, I, you know, I, I think I should get a second opinion, but uh, um, I don't want to upset my doctor. Uh, I don't want to offend, or, or you know, my doctor, or I don't want him to be angry at me. Um, you know, how does a patient deal with that? First of all, should every patient get a second opinion, and, and, and how should a patient deal with those concerns they have about doing that? 
Boy, I wish I could answer this really quickly. Uh, <laughs> probably not one answer I can give you that would fit all scenarios, because yeah. I think you're right. I think, you know, doctors are people with feelings, and uh, patients very much want their doctors to like them. Mm-hmm. And the idea that you'll offend your doctor, especially if the doctor has spent a lot of time and, and given you a good consultation, is very real. I think it's important, though, at the end of the day, for each patient, each person diagnosed with cancer to do what's best for him or her mm-hmm. to guarantee that that he or she will have the best possible outcome and that there will be no later regrets. I think one of the key things about making the right decisions is to think about minimizing future regrets. And one of the ways that a person can do that is to say, you know, what will I feel terrible about later on if I leave undone now? So whatever somebody needs to do in order to feel at peace with a decision or sometimes to satisfy family members is important to do. And I think you can do this diplomatically, and you can tell the oncologist that you're doing this in order to satisfy a broader need, and most oncologists, I think, will be okay with it. Now, the other part of the question you ask is, does everybody need to have a second or third opinion? And I would say the answer depends a little bit on the context. It depends on who you consulted in the first place and what the diagnosis is. If it's a diagnosis, for example, for which there is no standard treatment, say a disease disease like multiple myeloma, then it may be important to consult with different doctors who might have different approaches to that disease. If it's a very common disease for which there's very good standard treatment, it may be less important. And then the next piece is also who is giving you the first opinion. If you've gone to somebody who is a renowned expert who at a center of excellence who has a wonderful team and has given you a wonderful consultation, maybe you really don't need it. So I think that uh, instead of rushing to schedule second and third opinions, it's important to think about what you got from your first one, then think perhaps about what information needs you have that have not been met. Mm -hmm. Do you want to hear about experimental treatments? Do you want to hear about alternative treatments? Do you want to hear about investigational treatments? Or if there is a mismatch between you and the doctor and you know you're not going to be able to be a good team, then perhaps it's important to go. But before you have clear in your own mind what you want to get out of the second or third opinion, perhaps it's more important to take a step back and just look at the whole picture. Uh, great, great advice. We're really well said, Lydia. Thank you. Um, Doug, I want, to, I want to go back to your experience. You told us that uh, when you were diagnosed with cancer, you were moved into the hospital pretty quickly to start treatment right away. <clears throat> you found... Uh, the wellness community, looking the wellness community offering support, uh, education. At what point during your cancer experience did you find the wellness community? How did you find the wellness community, and what did you see there that you felt was going to help you through your cancer experience? Well, that, that's a very good question. Initially, I didn't have support other than from my family, and um, really didn't get a lot of. Yeah, you know, wasn't meeting any other cancer survivors except maybe seeing someone at chemotherapy, that kind of thing, and so. The first 11 months, unfortunately, very unfortunately, I did not have any kind of uh, support group in the way of something like the wellness community, and I began to isolate uh, and go into what I now realize was a downward spiral. Mm-hmm. And so I was really going into crisis, and so I called the American Cancer Society and said, I think I need help, and um, it was just, everything was just, just too overwhelming for me, and so... Um, they 
gave me a list of some places in the, in the valley in Phoenix, Arizona, and the wellness community was one of them. And just in the very small description on the on the information given to me, something kind of called out to me about that, and I contacted them. And um, it was just the first time that I really felt like a shift. And when I got there, uh, I, it was the first time I'd encountered other cancer survivors and the patient active concept. And so uh, that really was the point at which, you know, I got out of that loop, that endless loop, I mm-hmm. think, you know, where you're trapped in your head. And so that really, that was, you know, that made the difference was getting uh, to talk to other people who were cancer survivors and who were had either already gone through the same thing or were also facing it as well. You know, Matt, we... Um uh, you and I had been working together around this report that came out last year from the Institute of Medicine called Cancer Care for the Whole Patient. What the report pretty much says is, look, folks, we cannot just focus on the disease. We cannot just focus on the treatment. We have to treat the whole patient. We have to tend to the patient's psychological, social, emotional, spiritual needs. And if we don't, they're not going to have the best outcome in their, in their, in their cancer. So, Matt, just let's talk a little bit more about the IOM report and really the importance of this, you know, what some call integrated care in cancer. Well, the IOM report is groundbreaking. And for the first time, we had such an auspicious group truly talk about why we're doing all of this medical care. And we're doing all this medical care to make life much more meaningful, to heal people and to uh, cure people, and to make that life more highly valued by providing the supports that people need. Uh, The IOM report, in some ways, really manifested what patients do when they have cancer and become the wounded warriors, and that is they reprioritize their values. They treat every moment like it is gold, knowing that it is a a, a gift, which is something that we should uh, certainly all do. When the IOM report looked at what the research showed, it showed that people who are actively involved in their care, uh, the sorts of experiences that they specifically have at the wellness uh, community centers across the country and in other countries, things like sharing their experiences with other people, physical activity, learning new skills like problem-solving skills or meditation or yoga or going to counseling on their own or with their families, uh, finding new interests, uh, making the shift that Doug talked about, deciding to live a meaningful, wise life, Mm -hmm. learning new ways to express yourself through hobbies or through art. And if you think about being a whole person, it means all of these things. So in many ways, the Institute of Medicine really is a clarion call to humanizing the cancer experience to bring the person back into the patient. Excellent, excellent. And I know we're continuing to do work together to, to, uh, to make sure we get the word out on this report and to make sure that all cancer patients have access to this kind of care. Lydia, you're a medical oncologist in, in, in Boston. Any thoughts on what we can do so that uh, we're going to go to a break in just a minute, but any thoughts on, on what we can do so that more medical oncologists are aware of the psychosocial needs of patients and how we get oncologists to refer patients to these kinds of support services? Yeah, I think that's a very important question, and oncologists vary in their psychosocial orientation. Some think that this is actually what makes our practice joyful, 
to actually mm. be of service to patients and families, and really they think about it all the time, and they wish they had more resources to offer. Mm. So one of the things that we can do to work collaboratively is to list the resources, and as Matthew was saying, to have a way of systematically screening to see what needs our patients have, and then be able to point them in the right direction so those needs can be met. Now, some of my colleagues have less of a psychosocial orientation, and perhaps they just need to be given a checklist. And uh, what we can do is increase the awareness, again, of the patients and families' needs, of the evidence that links meeting these needs to better outcomes, and the resources that are available in the community to help meet those needs. Are you seeing resources that are available there in in, uh, in Boston, Lydia? I think the re- resources are local and regional. Mm-hmm. I think some of the resources perhaps are international in the web era. There are ways of patients to be in touch with uh, even support groups on the web, uh, to reach out to people, to learn about strategies for coping. But a lot of the in-person things, the hand-holding or the one-on-one counseling or buddy things need to be done locally. So we've got to find ways creatively of helping to link people where they are with the resources available, both human resources and also perhaps uh, um, uh, informational resources or educational resources. Some things need to be done in person, but not everything. Great. So we need to be creative and try to find ways of meeting people's needs. I think that's really the message for the oncologist, that they can't walk away from it. If the oncologist is not particularly interested in this, yeah. somebody on their team needs to pay attention. Yeah. We're going to pick this up right after the break. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. Hello. Hi, Bill. Uh, This is George Dewey from up the street. Oh, hey, George. How you doing? Good, good. Say, I noticed you've been walking to work these days instead of driving, Mm. and I uh, don't quite know how to say this, but, but... But what? But, but, your butt. Your buttocks, your butt, I think I found your butt on my front lawn. Have you recently lost it? As a matter of fact, I have, George. It's about time someone noticed. Well, it was kind of hard to miss, if you know what I mean. Anyways, would you like it back? Would I like it back? No, not really. So it's okay if I throw it out? Sure, that's fine. Take it easy, George. Small step number eight. Walk instead of driving whenever you can. It's just one of the many small steps you can take to help you become a healthier, well, you. Get started at www.smallstep.gov and take a small step to get healthy. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle coworkers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. For more than 25 years, the wellness community has been the nation's leader in providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or 
or at one of our 26 centers in the U.S. and abroad, the wellness community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-WELL or visit us online at www.thewellnesscommunity.org. That's thewellnesscommunity.org. The Wellness Community, celebrating over 25 years of cancer support, education, and hope. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health & Wellness. listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Wellness Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community. This is Kim Tibaldo from the Wellness Community. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We're back talking with our panelists, Dr. Lydia Shapiro from Massachusetts General Hospital, Matt Lascalzo from City of Hope, and Doug Wilkie, a cancer survivor and participant at the Wellness Community of Arizona. I want to pick up where we left off for the break for just a minute, uh, Lydia. We were talking about the importance of patients uh, getting uh, support, sometimes called psychosocial support, social emotional support, um, attending support groups, educational programs, learning how to manage the stress that comes with a cancer diagnosis, how to cope uh, with the illness and with the disease. We were talking about the fact that there are some resources available face-to-face in communities. There are also some resources available online. Uh, I know we at the wellness community have a whole virtual community online where we have support groups and, and uh, education education, and and, uh, we are reaching a lot of folks who particularly live in small towns in rural areas may not have access to the kind of support available, let's say, um, in a place like Boston. But Lydia, let's just pick back up uh, for a moment on the importance of these kinds of services for cancer patients. As someone, a medical oncologist, you're you're seeing patients every day. Uh, Tell us what you feel is the importance of these kinds of support services, aside from top-notch medical care, uh, the importance of that for patients and families? Well, I think that uh, a diagnosis of cancer really interrupts the status quo, and what was normal before is no longer normal. As uh, Matt was saying, uh, the priorities shift. There may be shifts in relationships. There may be new concerns, uh, perhaps financial concerns. It depends on who the person is and where they're at in their life. I work with, and in the last week, I've seen several very young women diagnosed, for example, with breast cancer who are very concerned about preserving fertility. So for them, um, I need to shift my interventions to really addressing what their losses are, what their concerns are, and provide, as you say, Kim, the expert medical care in that area, but also to provide support and just learn to listen to them. For older patients, perhaps, uh, it's the fear of becoming becoming a burden on family, of disrupting the life of uh, other members of the family because they're dependent on transportation uh, from other family members. So I think that uh, the uh, medical team, the oncologist, the oncology nurse, need to be very agile, very flexible in meeting each patient where he or she is at. And the concerns vary developmentally on where a person's at, what they've completed in their lives, what 
may be left undone, what the losses are, what the distresses are, and we need to be able to help our patients get the right support and help. And sometimes, you know, we are so good at trying to fix things. If our patients can actually tell us what's wrong and what worries them the most, it's much easier for us than to become their ally and help them find the right source and kind of help. Uh, Doug, one thing that we hear from folks after they've they've had a diagnosis of cancer is that things certainly do change in their lives, things shift, uh, that, that things don't go back to, you know, quote-unquote normal, that there's, a, uh, uh, that there's a new normal that happens after a cancer diagnosis. Doug, can you talk to us a little bit about how maybe your life changed as a result of, uh, of your cancer experience? Do you, do you see things differently? Do you, do you look at life differently as a result of this experience? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, mine is probably a pretty big, big change in that, you know, that new normal. I was uh, 37 when the, when the cancer happened to me. And um, for me, cancer, after I got through the worst parts of it, you know, became really a very liberating thing. And I was able to use cancer as a way to really change my life and really refocus, I believe Matt had said earlier, um, on what was important and what, you know, what, what are priorities. And, you know, not everything in my life up until that point had been uh, exactly, you know, how I wanted it to be. Now, I know that that's not the case for everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, some people have great lives they want to, you know, get right back to. But um, for me, that new normal took on a really big, big uh, shift in, in what I wanted to do for the future. And so cancer taught me patience, but it really... Um, it really gave me a lot of self-confidence when you find out what you're made of. And I, I gave me a lot of time um, to reflect and to make decisions. You know, what do I want my life to be moving forward? I, uh, it, to use a, an example of, you know, I kind of like wiping the slate clean. And, you know, I made some tough decisions, but ultimately great decisions and was able to streamline my life and focus. And I've gone back to school. Um, I got involved in, of course, a lot of cancer advocacy and volunteer work. Um, it's just a completely new horizon for me. So I was able to channel a lot of that in, into new directions. And I feel like I'm just an incredibly different person and, and a better person than I ever was before cancer. So it's, for me, it was a huge, a huge change. And I know it's not for everybody. Right. You know, right. there's, there's varying degrees of that. But I was able to, to really make some big changes, and they've been great. I think, Doug, what you're saying is very powerful because I imagine a lot of people listening to the show would think, wow, you know, cancer is probably the worst thing that could ever happen to you. And to hear you talk about it, mm-hmm. well, it, <laughs> it sounds like uh, it was like actually it. a pretty amazing and transformative experience. Yeah, you know, I, I, you know, while it was happening, of course I didn't think it was a, yeah. a great thing. And I think perspective and time has a great deal to do with that. I mean, if you'd even asked me a few months, you know, after, you know, I was still, you know, it's taken me a, a little bit of time to get here, but yeah, and I, you know, sometimes I hear people say that, and I think, boy, that's a, that's a strange thing to say, and, you know, now I'm one of those people, and it really is true, it really is quite simply the most amazing thing that's ever happened to me, and, you know, it was a good thing, and yes, it was, you know, extremely 
difficult, but I found it was very profound. And, and so, yeah. Matt, we have a minute or two uh, until our break, but can you tell us, is that, is that a common experience, what Doug's telling us, of, this, of finding, finding meaning through, through something as horrible as cancer, finding a new horizon, a way to kind of refocus your life? Is that a common experience, Matt? I have uh, heard many people say to me that they're not happy that they ever got cancer, but it did cause their lives to get better. And that's a paradox, because why would anyone say something like that? By the very fact that you are made more conscious of the life and the value and the gifts that we have as people, because cancer, if it does nothing else, it helps you to focus on your strengths and your resources and enables you to reprioritize your life to think about not the life that you inherited, but the life you are living, and even more importantly, the life you are deciding to have. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we, we hear it also here at the wellness community quite a bit that, that it's, it's, it has, it's been, a, we hear the term a lot, a wake-up call for me. Cancer was a wake-up call. It helped me look at my life in a whole different way. And, you know, I was amazed. I was talking to a man in St. Louis who had lost his wife to cancer. And um, I said, you know, what did you get from the wellness community? And he said, you know, I, I could not imagine that I could at the same time watch my wife deteriorate physically, but yet become a more whole person. He said that the last year of our life, even though she was dying, the last year of our life became the most important year of our life. We connected in a whole different way than we ever had before in, you know, in our relationship, and that it really strengthened the relationship. Is that, is that, is that common, Matt? Do you, do you well, see that as well? Well, Kim, I find it fascinating that you bring it to a personal experience of a person, but when I was in, uh, when I was in Japan and met your members from the wellness community there, you were talking about a personal change, but I saw a cultural change. Mm -hmm. I saw physicians and nurses and social workers talking about cancer and support and strength-based and finding meaning, and that is a new thing. So I think the wellness community is creating an environment which is really fertile ground for a whole new way of thinking of how you define really wellness. Uh, and that wellness has very little to do with, you know, with uh, a physical illness. It has more about a decision that you make about how one is going to be living life. You know, it's been interesting that my my uh, own experience in in being the CEO of this organization, um, uh, the gift, the greatest gift that I that I get in this job is is really having had that experience and people saying to me, "Don't wait until you get cancer to to, to live your life the way you want to live your life." You know, I, I uh, you know That's I had to wait until great. that happened, but there's, they say to me, "Don't wait until you get cancer to live your life the way you want to live your life," and that's been an amazing. Uh, gift to me uh, in this role with this organization uh, and an incredible uh, incredible learning experience we are going to uh, we're going to take a, a quick break we're talking today about the empowered cancer patient what you and your loved ones can do to become uh, educated to become empowered in the face of a cancer diagnosis which can certainly as we know be an incredibly difficult one of the most difficult moments in one's life to be diagnosed with cancer but we're talking today about how you can take back control, uh, become educated and empowered, and how you can find hope uh, in the face of a cancer diagnosis. So we are going to take a a quick break here on Frankly Speaking About Cancer, and we're going to be back in just a minute to talk about the empowered cancer patient. 
A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. Holistic health and well-being covers many facets, including stress, time management, weight loss, cardiovascular training, and aging. And that's just to name a few. Your life without limits will help to sort it all out for you. Join host Joe Sardi and the top minds in holistic health and well-being for an educational and entertaining hour. Listen for Your Life Without Limits. Heard every Wednesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. For more than 25 years, the wellness community has been the nation's leader in providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at one of our 26 centers in the U.S. and abroad, the wellness community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-WELL or visit us online at www.thewellnesscommunity.org. That's thewellnesscommunity.org. The Wellness Community, celebrating over 25 years of cancer support, education, and hope. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. Listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Wellness Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm Kim Tibaldo. We've been talking about uh, the ways in which people with cancer can stay uh, empowered, uh, be part of the decision-making process, and really uh, improve the quality of their lives. Uh, Doug Wilkie, you are a cancer survivor from our wellness community in Arizona. Talk to me a little bit about what you wish you had known then that you know now. What advice would you give to someone who's just been diagnosed with cancer? Yeah, um, you know, I really wish initially I had been aware of the wellness community's patient active concept uh, and the support that I would find there. Um, that was, you know, that was missing in my initial experience. And so, uh, and I work with newly diagnosed people now all the time. And really, I think it comes back to when I found the wellness community and got there, um, there there is this instant connection that all cancer survivors uh, share, and it's a very powerful uh, and effective tool. It's a very profound connection, and so I would encourage people to find support. You'll hear a lot of times people say, but I have a very friendly, uh, good support group from friends and family, but, and I think that's essential, but that is not necessarily, if those people aren't going through the actual cancer experience, there is a different kind of understanding that's very powerful when you find those other people. Um, it really, 
And if you can find somebody, first of all, I would say find support from cancer survivors in general and then within your diagnosis specifically. Um, so in my case, it was finding those other lymphoma survivors. And, you know, to find someone that had my exact diagnosis, but they were in full remission and completely cancer-free, but yet had gone through all the things that I was about to go through or was going through, was that was probably... A, as good of medicine as anything else I got along the way. It was that powerful for me. It completely shifts your thinking. It expands your network. So all of the stuff that you're learning as a new person thrown in and all of your experiences, imagine that multiplied by all of the other people at the wellness community or that you're getting support from. You're learning from their experiences. So you're really increasing your options. Mm-hmm. Uh, and most of all, you're, 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 fine, you're increasing your support level, which can really be a huge part of bringing you hope. And every cancer survivor not only deserves that, but I believe has a right to be supported and to find hope so that you'll be able to face whatever is coming next. Really well said, Doug. And I just, I, I really appreciate so much you take, being on the call today and really reflecting on your own uh, personal experience. I think that means, that means so much to us to... Uh, oh, well, it means a lot to me to, to hear from be you, able really. to do it. Fantastic. I, I want I want to ask uh, first Matt, and then the same question to Lydia, uh, as we're kind of winding down here today. Um, again, we're talking about being an empowered patient. You've been diagnosed with cancer. You're dealing with this. Are there are there any practical suggestions? Any helpful tips that you can offer to our listeners today if they've been diagnosed with cancer or they're helping someone through a cancer diagnosis? Specific tips, specific things that they can do to help manage their way through this illness. Well, first, I think that it's important to acknowledge that on your way to becoming empowered, you actually need to be able to admit at some point that perhaps you're feeling powerless, you're feeling vulnerable, and I think that's the scary piece. And then it's through the kindnesses that you experience, perhaps from people who were strangers, or the uh, efforts that somebody makes to reach out to you, that you start to develop your own strength and your own inner strengths to help you cope. Eventually, I think, most people cope by finding their inner strengths and being tuned in to their own ability to recover. And it's the kindness often of either professional caregivers or a neighbor or a friend or a relative that forms that transforming, meaningful experience, which actually gives hope and sustains hope and makes people say that they perhaps are a better person for having experienced that cancer. What I see all the time is a sense of gratitude even that comes after having received those kindnesses that leads people to volunteer, to reach out, to be the buddy to somebody else who's diagnosed. So my advice is this. First, to develop compassion for yourself. Second, to find your own strength and to be able and perhaps even willing to acknowledge if you're feeling powerless that that's sort of a place where you start. Then to find good, useful information, to be able to articulate to your professional caregivers what you're particularly worried about. Doctors and nurses love to fix and treat and diagnose, so we love it when our patients actually tell us in a clear way what they worry about, and then we can help them make a plan to get better. Excellent. Excellent. Great advice. Matt, let me take that question to you. Ideas, tips, practical suggestions on really how to manage what can be a very overwhelming experience. 
Yes, and it can be. And once one ex- accepts lack of control and powerless, powerlessness, it can be a profoundly freeing experience. But what people often don't understand is that you can decide to be a wise person. You can decide that you're going to manage this challenge well. And so I think the first thing is what Lydia said, to be compassionate and patient with you and those around you. Just know you're all in a confused state, which is normal, and that should pass within seven to ten days. But most of the problems uh, that people have in this illness, other people have been through it, and there are counselors, and there are social workers, and there are psychiatrists, and psychologists, and spiritual counselors, and they do this work every single day. I highly recommend two people. Talk with your oncologist and your nurse. Ask them who they use for psychological and social support with their other patients. Mm -hmm. This is really an important concept because if your physician and nurse have names or have someone in their office, you should feel comfortable being there. Mm -hmm. But if there is an oncologist who does not have the support system or access to it or works closely with the wellness community or an organization like that, I would have real second thoughts about staying there because a person who is so not in tune with whole person care would not make me or a family member of mine, would not make me feel that I'm in the right sort of place. So I would say reach out, don't wait, do it early because for those people who reach out early, the road is less rocky. There are guideposts. There are people who do this every day. There are organizations in the community who can help you, and the wellness community is certainly one of them. Excellent, Matt. You know, one of the things that we do on the show is we take some questions and comments from some of our wellness community folks from around the country. I have a comment uh, from Don from the wellness community of Delaware that I want to read to you. Um, Don says that when he was first diagnosed with prostate cancer, he was really depressed. Um, and he began to take yoga classes at his local wellness community to really try to lift out of his um, depression. And it was while he was taking yoga that he began seeing some of the other resources available at the wellness community, uh, things like guided imagery, poetry workshops, support groups. Uh, he says he didn't even realize um, what he was missing until he started participating in support groups, and, and he finally got the uh, emotional support he needed all along to become empowered and really regain control of his life. And, you know, I find it interesting. We've got uh, Doug on the phone today from uh, Arizona. We've got Don uh, on the phone today from uh, Don, uh, who wrote into us today from from uh, Delaware. We have a, you know, a lot of folks who think that men, in particular, are not going to go out and get uh, not going to go out and get support. But I'm kind of happy to report that we have uh, examples with us today of two men who actually really did uh, reach out to find support, uh, to find hope, to connect with other people uh, in their communities who were going through the same thing uh, that they were going through. And it's, it's amazing to me, you know, with those over 100 locations now at the wellness community, we see that magic happening uh, every day. We see the kind of in, that kind of interaction happening among people really supporting each other uh, every single day. We, we've had a, um, a great show today, uh, frankly speaking about cancer, really talking about the empowered cancer patient, how to be educated and empowered. I want to thank our panelists, uh, Doug Wilkie, Dr. Lydia Shapira, Matt Lascalzo. Um, I, I want to take a moment today to dedicate our show to the wellness community's late founder, Dr. Harold Benjamin, who really had the vision uh, 26 years ago to found this organization on the patient active concept. I'd uh, like to also thank and acknowledge Harold's wife, Harriet, 
Benjamin, who was the inspiration um, behind the wellness community. It was really Harriet's cancer experience that led Harold uh, to found the wellness community and to reach out to people really starting in Santa Monica, now all over the country, all over the world, uh, so that they can find hope, find support, uh, and find inspiration really in the face of a cancer diagnosis. So thank you uh, to all of our panelists today. And remember, until next time, be well, do well, live well. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at thewellnesscommunity.org. That's thewellnesscommunity.org.